um so dennis what's going to happen um we're going to pre-record a um intro after this um so there won't really be any intro um on this podcast we'll just say you know welcome to the show um you know and we can kind of go from there but we'll be pre-recording one um you know talking a little bit about you your background um we sent over the questions um but we can keep it you know fairly loose uh, you know we'll 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 tee you up with a question and feel free to kind of riff on whatever um interests you so sure all good yeah i looked at the questions i i glanced at the questions mm. nothing we can't discuss there but let's see where the conversation goes i i do tend to get off on tangents so that's, that's you know, perfect feel free to laugh at me and bring me back to the main <laughs> topic you know <laughs> that's we've, what we've got a good uh... for yeah, <laughs> we've got a good, uh, you know, 45-ish minutes, and we can always tailor some stuff back. Um, but we yeah. we enjoy the tangents, too, because there's always some, some good meat and fun stuff to go through there. Absolutely. Okay, yeah, 45 minutes. We've got a lot to uh, to cover, but we'll, <laughs> Just we'll a see few gentle, goes. shallow like topics. like a series of sound bites, basically. <laughs> yeah, we'll see where we get to. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Okay, well, ready when you are, Erin. You can uh, you can you can kick us off. All right, awesome. Um, yeah, hi, Dennis. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Great to be here. So you've been, Dennis. You've been interviewed a million times by some of the best podcasters out there. You've talked, you know, a lot about your past, your books, your history. You know, anyone can go and check those interviews out. You've been on Joe Rogan, Tim Ferriss. And I highly recommend everybody do check those interviews out. They're excellent and a, a really good primer. Um, but for our conversation, we really wanted to you know, focus on the present and the future. There's a lot going on in the world of psychedelics, and not many people have the experience that you have. So, you know, there's been an explosion of interest around psychedelics recently with the word renaissance being used a lot. Um, we're seeing best-selling books on the subject, articles in the New York Times, celebrities coming out daily talking about their experience. It's a very interesting time. And I wondered, you know, what you make of all this and what you make of the framing as a renaissance and a kind of revival? Well, I, I mean, I, I make of it that I, I think that it's a very encouraging thing that, you know, these medicines are being acknowledged, finally recognized for their virtues, for their potential for therapeutic use, as well as other applications such as simply for tools for the exploration of consciousness. Uh, everyone talks about the psychedelic renaissance, you know, the psychedelic revival. Those words imply that you know, there was some golden age where psychedelics were accepted, and then they were suppressed, and now we're we're moving past that. I don't really see that in our culture. They've always been suppressed. They've always been more or less on the fringes of uh, of uh, you know what's acceptable in a certain sense. I mean, there have been a very dedicated bunch of people who have sort of been involved in psychedelics for forever, people like me, for example, but it's taken a very long time for them to get more acceptance by 
mainstream medicine, and I mean that hasn't even happened yet. It is happening, and and then just with the uh, you know the general public uh, is gaining more acceptance. So I don't know that there is really a renaissance in a certain sense. This is like this has never happened. You know, psychedelics have been uh, suppressed, depending on when you were to start counting, you know, I mean, we could start counting with the Garden of Eden, hmm. you know, which my brother has talked about as the first drug bust, you know, <laughs> or if you want to go a little more recently, the Pharmacratic Inquisition 500 years ago, you know, the suppression of indigenous uh, shamanic practices by Christianity as it moved into the New World. So psychedelics have always been sort of on the shadow side, on the on the margins, and, and sort of forbidden in a certain way, or, or viewed as uh, you know dangerous territory, you know, which they can be, you know, because the, you're talking about exploring the deepest levels of of yourself. But whether it's a renaissance or not, I'm encouraged by the fact that uh, you know, as a society, we've matured enough that we can now begin to accept them. You know, back in the 60s, they were, you know, when all the repression more or less came down and became solidified into law, you know, the focus was on LSD primarily. That's pretty much what there was around. And uh, and it, the reactions toward the diffusion of psychedelics into society, particularly young people at that time, created... Uh, a lot of hysteria set off many alarm bells, you know, and then there was a flurry of legislation and suppression and 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 you know outright prohibition of many of these things. So I'm encouraged that forty years later, or actually now it's more like uh, you know fifty years later, uh, society has matured enough that that hysteria is a little lower, and and I think enough. People now in the, I guess what you might call the dominant generation, my generation, we're people who have lived through the 60s. So we're not so scared of psychedelics, you know. Maybe we weren't involved in it, but we know people that have been. And, you know, we we recognize that there's, uh, these are uh, two-edged swords for sure. Like any technology, they can be used beneficially or not. but I, I think it bespeaks a certain maturity in our culture that we can look at this and say, well, wait a minute, all of these terrible things that were said about psychedelics in the 60s, maybe that's not true, you know, maybe, or maybe only some of it was true. So I think we're becoming, uh, you know, more accustomed to the idea of, of psychedelics and the fact that they have benefits, you know, and it doesn't hurt that there is now an accumulating body of scientific evidence that shows that they do have these these properties or at least this potential. So uh, I think that's where we find ourselves at the current, uh, you know, historical juncture. Yeah. Yeah, I almost kind of think you need to couple the um, Renaissance with kind of for who because, you know, uh, for a lot of people, nothing has changed. Obviously, indigenous cultures have kind of used these things for you know thousands of years, and there's clearly yeah. been a, a you know a, a group of people, even in the West, that have continually used these 
substances, um, you know, certainly since their rediscovery um, for us in kind of the 50s. Um, so for me, it's kind of, you know, a renaissance for who, for me, it's kind of almost better ca- characterized as a, um, you know, a corporate or psychiatric or scientific renaissance in the West, a kind of medical renaissance where we're now seeing, you know, acceptance in the mainstream of of science and and more research because of the, the, you know, prohibition, um, you know, dropping back and uh, regulations loosening up. Now we're starting to see the kind of scientific literature bubble up. But for me, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly better to characterize it, I think, as a, you know, psychiatric kind of clinical uh, renaissance and kind of whereas everybody else has continuously used these things for a long time. Right. It, It is being accepted psychiatry and medical practice uh, and there are those that say that's the only legitimate niche in which they should be used you know that they have to be used they have to be medicalized they should only be used under the the care of clinicians and they should be used for you know for the treatment of mental disorders you know things like uh, spiritual development uh uh, the exploration of consciousness, these kinds of things are less accepted even now. And sort of, you know, the medical community uh, uh, is nervous about that. Even though some of the initial studies uh, that got this started and that began the, the process of the legitimization of psychedelics were Roland Griffith studies of Johns Hopkins back in the mid-aughts around 2006, where he was working with uh, people with uh, terminal illnesses, primarily cancer patients who were faced with with uh, the prospect of dying and, and were anxious about coming to terms with that. And it turns out that psilocybin treatment could be very helpful for that. So, and, and the, the experiences that came out of that were mystical experiences, essentially, that made people feel that there was a larger picture. There was there was something about existence that was larger than just the individual, maybe God, if you want to put it that way, but some sort of transcendent reality that that encouraged people, you know, and made them made them feel better. So it's kind of ironic, you know. Now medicine wants to, in some ways, not go fo- go too far down the path of uh, spirituality you know they want to keep it fairly clinical fairly focused on, on on the clinical side but we're talking about the spirit we're talking about treating mental disorders and and you know so that inevitably has got to grade over onto the spiritual side because it has to do with people's existential understanding of themselves and their place in the universe, their destiny, uh, all of those things, which uh, before were pretty much, you know, they were not really discussed in a clinical context. So before they were, uh, uh, you know, they they were, uh, got to, sorry, Uh, that was, you know, that was something the priests talked to you about, not Mm -hmm. your doctor. And now, of course, in indigenous societies, you know, we have this situation where the priests and the shamans are the doctors, you know, and they use these medicines 
in a way that acknowledges, you know, the importance of the ritual space, the set and setting. All of that is very important to use these substances, uh, you know, beneficially, therapeutically, or for spiritual spiritual purposes. So there is a model there, you know, and the uh, you know indigenous people have been using psychedelics in this way in for healing for you know roughly ten thousand years that, that we know about, probably much longer than that. So I think it's important to acknowledge that they probably learned a few things about how to use them. And I think that clinicians could take a page from that and look at how these things can be used for a, for a you know, 21st century uh, audience or 21st century clientele who who's, are still suffering. You know, they're still dealing with the same kinds of issues that everyone has always dealt with, you know. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, medicines for the soul, essentially. Diseases of the soul. You know, science has accumulated enough evidence to show the intimate relationship between the mind and the body. And your state of mind is going to reflect your state of health. And your state of health, vice versa, will reflect on your your mental experience these are not separable you know and uh, and that's one of the things i think one of the things that psychedelics has done almost uh uh to medicine almost when nobody was noticing is it's reintroduced this idea of spirit the spirituality or the spirit into medicine and for 150 years medicine has been trying to exorcise the spirit out of medicine, and the approach has been very reductionist, you know, over-reliance on pharma, pharma, psychopharmaceuticals, on pharmacology, and the, and the perception is, well, you know, we're just complex machines, right? And if we apply the right molecular monkey wrench, we can fix the machine. It's a very reductionist view, and it's not correct, you know. These things are not magic bullets, uh, exactly. They... Not in the sense that we think of a, a drug as being a magic bullet. They create an opportunity by helping you kind of step temporarily out of your reference frame. They create an opportunity to look at your existential situation in a way that you may never have before. And that insight can be healing. You know, and then really, and that's why it's so important to have preparation for the experience of someone to support you while you're having the experience and then someone qualified a clinician or, or shaman or whatever to help you integrate the experience afterwards and sort out what does all this mean you know and then how do you take the lessons that come from it and fold that into your existence going forward in other words how is it going to help you the day after the session or a year after the session or for the rest of your life because uh, you know you can have the experience but if you don't uh, try to uh, sort of take the lesson to heart it won't do you much good mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and, and so yeah Dennis I think I mean you you touched on so many points there that are so resonating with what's currently happening in the psychedelic landscape and 
Um, I loved how you said, you know, we're at this point of maturity now as, as a civilization, as a society, uh, we're actually able to bring together these worlds of ancient medicines and, and modern medicines with a, a newfound understanding and appreciation. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I definitely loved hearing about that. I, I just want to kind of pick up on one of those threads you were talking about. And as you said, you know, there's, there is such an important movement happening, um, in, I guess you could almost imagine this as the golden age of psychedelics. And, and I also love that, that term that you use. A lot of people are really instilled and excited with what's going on in, in psychedelic research and study and, and getting to truly understand the mechanisms behind them as well as these, you know, ethereal experiences and, and understand how those can come together. But um, you spoke a lot about this, like, simple, simplified reductionist uh, medical access and how a lot of people are pushing for that kind of framework and this obvious need as you're expressing to bring together the worlds of integration and therapy and sacred ceremony and modern medicine so um yeah i'd love for you to just unpack a little bit like in terms of how you see that actually coming to fruition you know how does how does that model look to you um should anyone be able to access these substances in in what circumstances love to hear a little bit more of your take on that I think that potentially, yes, anyone should be able to access them, you know, but with reasonable guidelines and regulation and from an informed place. Uh, I mean, the same the same case that you might say, well, anyone who's capable of it should be able to drive a car, you know, but we expect you to take a lesson and learn how to do it and have a license and do this kind of thing. I think a reasonable level of... Uh, uh, you know, regulation and more on the line of guidelines rather than prohibitionist approaches are mm-hmm. definitely called for. And I, I also think that uh, clinicians and, you know, mainstream medical uh, therapists and so on should be talking a lot more to indigenous people. You know, that's where the wisdom lies. That's where these folks have used these for thousands of years. So the current therapeutic models are, are going to borrow heavily from those, you know, if they know what's good for them, because, you know, and, and then there are issues. We're not interested in co-opting necessarily uh, indigenous knowledge, nor are we interested in, or we shouldn't be interested in just imitating in indigenous practices. You know, we're not indigenous, but we can learn from those cultures ways to approach these things. And that's what I would like to see is, you know, mm-hmm. as this goes forward, 10 years from now, maybe less than that, what I think the therapeutic uh, paradigms that may emerge are some kind of a fusion between traditional practices and clinical practices, you know, biomedical practices, I sometimes call them. Take the best of both and fuse them together and come up with a new paradigm uh, to use these things. Now, the problem is when you come up with a new paradigm to integrate psychedelics into medicine, uh, it doesn't fit any of the current revenue models. You know, in order to do this, you basically have to completely reform psychiatric medicine, you know, which is based on the use of psychopharmaceuticals, which are largely ineffective, and uh, and therapists who, you know, the premium... Uh, the, the costs of this kind of uh, mental health care mostly has to do with therapists, 
and therapist's time, you know. Mm-hmm. And this kind of therapy requires intensive interacting with therapists, you know. That could get very expensive, you know. You're going to have to reach a point where insurance companies or whoever is paying for this can be convinced that this investment of time in creating these these structured therapeutic uh, sessions, which may go on for days, you know, uh, they're cost-effective. In other words, investing that time, the benefits will will accrue in the sense that the therapy actually works, you know, uh, and people can get over their problems. They don't have to keep consulting therapists for forever. They don't have to keep taking daily doses of SSRIs, you know, which will not mm-hmm. please the pharmaceutical companies, but that's not who we're out to please. We're here to try to deliver real real healing to to people with these kinds of disorders. Mm-hmm. So I love uh, that. Yeah, I think uh, just from a personal experience that it speaks to the power of, of community support networks because um, it's mm-hmm. as you said, you know, some of the some of the financials that can come alongside this therapy. Not everybody has access to that. So, how do we increase more of that peer to peer support and shared knowledge and and guidance, as you said, and, and lean on those different models from indigenous peoples, from you know groups around the world for the last hundreds of years of how we've supported evolution and progress and uh, social right. systems and things like that. What I would like to see, I hope, where this is trending is that. Uh, you know, I, 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 I'm encouraged by the various decrim movements that are going on in different cities and states and so on. There are problematic aspects to that, of course, but it, by and large, I do not think these substances should be prohibited. I don't believe in the prohibition of any organism. You know, I'm, I'm an advocate for symbiosis rather than prohibition. And, uh, uh, but what I would like to see happen is it, the decrim movements could lead to a situation where every community or many communities could, could have these psychedelic therapy centers, you know, and or maybe just therapy centers in which psychedelics are a component of the, the holistic treatments that are offered, borrow from indigenous people, uh, and develop the, the therapeutic paradigms based on indigenous practice and even work, I think, with indigenous people to uh, produce the medicines. I think the choice should be, uh, when there is a choice, I think it's a good choice to choose the natural medicine over the synthetic, although there's nothing wrong with the synthetic, so they're more ex- more expensive and all that. But choosing the natural medicine is, uh, you know, to many people that's more appealing. And uh, mm-hmm. one of the phenomena that's happening with the with the psychedelics and has been for maybe the last couple de- decades is the whole idea of drug tourism. You know, particularly ayahuasca. Uh, people are going to South America to have experiences with ayahuasca, and that's okay. They're, they're, they're not thrill-seekers. These are actually people who are mostly they're serious spiritual seekers and they have, they have issues that they're trying to find answers to and they're attracted to that because medicine 
you know, conventional medicine does not seem to have the answers that they have. But the impact of that economically and culturally on these fragile indigenous societies is is significant. You know, and there are benefits. There are also significant drawbacks. So how about creating a partnership with indigenous cultures where they produce the medicines, they work with clinicians to develop these therapeutic protocols instead of people going to South America to get the medicine, bring the medicine to North America where it's not prohibited anymore, it's regulated, but it's permitted, and then create these centers which are like, you know, essentially northern hemisphere uh, reflections of the kinds of retreat centers that that already exist, you know. And I'm aware sometimes the retreat centers are, you know, you wouldn't wish your worst enemy to go to some of these places. (laughs) But on the other hand, usually they're okay, you know, Uh and uh, people get a lot of benefit from them. That's, you know, so that's the new paradigm I would like to see where every community can offer these therapy, these these therapies, psychedelic therapies to uh, to people in the community for a reasonable cost, in a safe place, draws on the indigenous practices and, and the best of psychiatry, and uh, and make that accessible to people. And 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 also, I think it's important that these uh, these centers. Uh, you know, they they make an effort to integrate themselves into their communities. So it's like, you know, they're not some strange retreat center. What are those people out on the edge of town doing, you know, that we don't know about? I think it's much better if they try to inter- integrate with, with their local population, you know, go to state fairs, go to farmers markets, create opportunities where people can, you know, learn about what what is this center? What can you get there? You know, and I, I think it should be uh, a kind of a whole uh, a menu. Really, they'll be like they won't look like clinics. They'll look like spas. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll be a place where you can get a variety of holistic therapies. Maybe a little yoga. Maybe a little nutritional counseling. Whatever. But then on the menu is the option to have psychedelic therapy under a you know, with a with a qualified, uh, let's call them facilitator rather than shaman or clinician. People like to use the word facilitator, but that's what I would like to see it evolve into, and that could happen quickly. You know, I, I think that's a, an important point about the sustainability and the scalability of these of these medicines. It, it reminds me of you know a, a few years ago I read an article um, talking about. You know, wild chaga harvesting uh, in, in northern Canada, and you know, of course, we want more people to discover these you know, healing substances. But in doing that, um, you know, we're we're inviting you know, unethical or unsustainable harvesting practices and kind of devastating the the uh, the, the supplies that otherwise indigenous people would be using. And so, um, I, I, I completely agree, and, and kind of building out these systems of reciprocity for the indigenous but also i think that's probably where you can slot in a valid argument for synthetics and you know potentially one step further kind of ip 
um, patent development, uh, albeit it's a hot button right now. You know, if somebody's going to develop, I don't know, uh, synthetic um, you know, ayahuasca or, or, or mescaline and peyote, because peyote, you know, from what I've read is, you know, virtually extinct. Um, you know, there's really not much supplies left. So if we can, you know, create these variations that allow people to access it without stripping, you know, the natural stocks, I think is probably a good thing. Yes, definitely, it's a good thing. And and peyote, you mentioned, is a good example. So peyote is one of these where the dec- the people proposing the decrim movement need to be very careful with something like peyote because the indigenous people are saying, please don't decriminalize it. You know, leave it to us. It's our sacred thing. And we don't want it to be decriminalized because that will deplete it. You know, it's a very, it's an endangered species, essentially. The same is true of iboga, uh, ayahuasca to a lesser extent, but there's still a lot of pressure on, on ayahuasca. So we have to, as a community, we have to, uh, you know, come to a consensus about acknowledging sort of the primary primacy of the indigenous people and say, yeah, out of a sense of uh, supporting the community. And, and uh, you know, people who are not indigenous will just agree not to take peyote, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, we know it's a wonderful medicine, but ethically we can agree we just won't use it because we want to protect it for indigenous people, and the same could happen. Synthetic analogs are, are this is where synthetic analogs are you know, part of the solution because, you know, you can easily make mescaline. It's not difficult to synthesize mescaline. It's not difficult to synthesize uh, 5-methoxy DMT or or DMT, you know, and there, there's pressure now on the, on the Sonoran Desert Toad, for example, uh, you know, which contains 5-methoxy DMT. Yeah, it's... And, and by the way, that... That there's no evidence, despite what people are going to try and get you to believe, but there's no evidence of an indigenous tradition of the use of the toad. This mm. is a recent thing, and it's not hmm. necessary. You know, 5-methoxy DMT is easy to synthesize, and, you know, it's important medicine. It should be available, uh, but you don't have to... Uh, you don't have to have toad colonies to get it, you know, uh, and just leave the toads alone. You know? <laughs> I'm sure they would appreciate it. Some of these other things are, uh, you know, not so many. I mean, this is one reason why mushrooms are, uh, you know, I, I mean, mushrooms are probably the, at, the, at the top of the apex right now in terms of the, this interface between traditional knowledge and clinical knowledge. And mushrooms, there's no problem with. I mean, there's no shortage of them. They can be grown literally by the tons. Nobody's going to run out of mushrooms, you know. And if you want to use synthetic psilocybin, like some companies are, uh, then, you know, they have they have that option. Uh, but they can also use the, the natural sources. And, and often mm-hmm. there's very little difference between them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that's what I would like to see happen is, you know, try and, you know, create this bridge between the Southern Hemisphere and the Northern Hemisphere 
that has always been talked about in these romantic terms of, you know, the, the condor and the eagle coming mm-hmm. together and, you know, it's all kubaya and so on. But it still is a possibility, you know, mm-hmm. to do that. And I think that's uh, that's where I'd like to see, that's the way I, I would like to see this evolve. I think, you know, anytime there's some new shiny object that comes on in the corporate space, then the, the venture capitalists and those folks are going to jump on that. You see a lot of that happening, and uh, and it's inevitable in a certain mm-hmm. way. And I don't necessarily disapprove of it, but I think that because in one in one sense the the desire to develop new compounds, for example, and that kind of thing, you know, can drive scientific discovery. You know, and I'm all in favor of that. Uh, but at the same time, I think that. Uh, corporate entities that want to commercialize and patent these things really need to have their feet held to the fire regarding what are they going to give back to the indigenous communities. Reciprocity is the the operating term here. And I think these companies have a responsibility to practice reciprocity. Mm-hmm. And there's a group, I'll send you the link actually after the call, there's a group called Woven Science that is uh, very concerned with this. It's a combination of uh, entrepreneurs, uh, venture capitalists, uh, therapists, uh, different stakeholders, but they just put out a a big policy paper on reciprocity, uh, mm-hmm. which uh, may, have you heard of this group? By any chance? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, big fans. Yeah. Uh, have you seen yeah. this policy paper they're putting about? I haven't. Okay, well, I'll send it to you. I'd love that. We'll include it in the... Uh, have you seen it, Aaron? I haven't seen it. I've, I've heard quite a bit about it, though. Um, okay. And, and agreed, it's it's definitely a, a pretty crucial topic as we look to blend these worlds, as you've yeah, talked about. I, Just... I, think this, I, I think this policy paper needs to be spread far and wide just to get the conversation going. And, mm-hmm. and so I will send those to you when I when I uh, get off this call. Yeah, it's a fascinating uh, you know, topic and, and kind of thing to witness, the kind of patent wars and kind of you know, corporate moves into the, into the space. And clearly there are some justifications and need for patent to drive innovation. But then, you know, you don't have to be a genius to look at some patents. You know, we've, we've got large companies talking about patenting, listening to music while on a couch and, you know, yeah, this this sort of thing is. Yeah, do you patent? Do you get two pats on the knee or three pats on the knee? <laughs> to yeah. say, no, we have the patent on three pats on the knee. It's got to be yeah. either two or four. It gets really silly, right? And, and it, clearly, some of it is, and you know, obviously, a need to raise capital and so they. Can, but it's it's got. You're right. It's got kind of a little silly with some of them. I mean. You know, to the point where we're now seeing, you know, justifications through very specific kind of treatment um, options or disorders. You know, like you know, phase two clinical trials of treating acne in alpine skiers who have a itch behind their right knee. We're going to try and look at what DMT can do for it. I mean, it's very, very specific and clearly a kind of uh, a driver to differentiate in kind of pitching and and, and, and you know raising capital. But um, yeah. yeah, so. 
it's it's definitely interesting to to, to witness and very problematic in some areas and and you know sometimes justified. But there are a few things that you said before that you know I'd love to to double click on a little bit. I mean, I really like the point that you made about kind of cultural norms versus kind of punitive frameworks. Um, you know, in in my mind, nothing is gained through prohibition. Um, only you know right. negativity. Um, you know, people that think that they'll you know radically immediately increase access through uh, legalization or decriminalization don't really contend with the fact that most people who want this stuff can get it. They just get it in you know deregulated you know let's call it, you know sometimes more risky than others kind of uh, places they get gray market illicit market uh, they don't have the proper guidance for usage you know let's say mdma or something like that people can easily acquire it on the on the illicit market but they don't know how to use it properly i mean some obviously a lot of people do but you know in england growing up i remember a few deaths because people drank too much water and they you know they you know around their brain and you know or didn't drink enough water but you know in my mind getting rid of prohibition solves a lot of those problems you know i don't think you know you'll have a rush of people trying to access this but what you will have is more education more information and more, more guidance. education more information mm-hmm. this is this is it this is what's called for not punitive frameworks because it's never worked i mean i mean it it doesn't work you know you pro- prohibit something you create an incentive for somebody to create a black market in that thing and and there you are you just continue the you mentioned mdma you know and mdma has a lot of promise obviously for therapy one of the problems now with uh you know, is there's a tremendous proliferation of synthetic psychedelics. You don't know what you're getting when it mm-hmm. comes to something like MDMA. You know, I mean, you, you, you it's kind of a crapshoot because there are such a number of different synthetic psychedelics uh, out there and some aren't even psychedelics and then there's the whole issue of contamination and so on. One strong reason to rely on the natural medicines, if possible, you know, at least you know what you're getting. Um, so that's one of the things that we that we, you know, have have to deal with. Um, that actually brings forth a very specific inquiry that we had for somebody with such a background as yourself. Um, as you mentioned, you know, MDMA and, and certain other synthetics, they they have a different chemical makeup. They're treated a little bit differently um, from a chemistry perspective, from a synthesis perspective, all that kind of stuff. Um, there are clinics in the U.S., U.K., Canada that are focusing on ketamine as mm-hmm. this kind of bridge call it um to help normalize destigmatize and also it's it's legal um so would love just given your background especially like what are your thoughts on this uh kind of debatable inclusion of ketamine as a psychedelic well i think as you say ketamine is legal so that's a big factor in the decision to use it in psychedelic therapy because it you know it's available and I'm kind of amused by, you know, uh, all of these companies that want to develop what I call true psychedelics, more like 5-HT2A agonists, which ketamine is not. And there's this sort of sanguine expectation that we're going to invest all this money and start these companies and 
do these clinical trials because, well, it's not legal right now, but it will be soon. I think, Mm -hmm. I mean, I hope they're right, but I think that may be a little naive because to overturn some of these regulatory uh, frameworks is a long haul. You know, it takes years to change this kind of litigation. So I don't think that next year, you know, you'll be able to go to a psilocybin clinic other than in Oregon, right? I mean, that the decrim movement is already making these things possible, but I think it's going to take a while before you can go to, uh, you know, Sloan Kettering, for example, and get psychedelic therapy. Maybe not too many years, but it's not going to happen overnight. And the decrim movement and the deregulation of the natural medicines opens a door to make these things more accessible more quickly. And that's that's a good thing because uh, because people need these therapies. And uh, and in order to bring these constituencies together, you know, one one thing that really needs to happen is to is to you know explicitly uh, articulate these reciprocity structures, these relationships with the indigenous people who have been the stewards of these medicines for so long. You have to you have to really invent a whole new paradigm, not only for mental health care, but also for capitalism. You know, in a certain way. I mean, you know, we, we we've discovered we meaning non-indigenous people have discovered many medicines that that are, you know, that end up as patented drugs. It's not the usual case that we give anything back to the indigenous people that were, you know, the hard the 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 stewards of those those plants the habitats that they grow in and so on. It's usually been, you know, big pharma comes in and takes what they want and develops it uh, commercially, and very little thought is giving back to any kind of uh, uh, reparations or reciprocity. And that needs to change. You know, we need indigenous people, we need indigenous uh, cultures to to be viable, not not just for psychedelics, but for uh, many other uh, elements of their knowledge, you know, especially in this time of climate change. I mean, mm-hmm. and more or less planetary disaster. We, you know, their solutions uh, are a big part of the solution to this. We need to make sure these societies are vibrant and intact. Their knowledge is intact uh, because it's important for everyone. You know, it's important for survival of the species. Yeah, uh, there's a there's a um, a great term um, called biophilia um, that people talk about with psychedelic experiences, and you know, mm-hmm. these kind of big existential uh, questions, but also problems we're having: climate change and ecosystem degradation. I don't think it's a stretch to suggest that a, a better relationship with these various different plants, specifically psychedelics, could help or foster a better relationship with with the natural world. Yes, definitely. I mean, that's often the, 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 the insight that people come away with. You know, not only a better appreciation of themselves and their existential situation, but a better appreciation of how we fit in to the larger picture and, and uh, how really estranged we've become from nature, you know, over essentially 
a few a few centuries. I mean, it, but you know, so we need to we need to realign ourselves with nature and, and recognize that uh, you know we have to strive to live in harmony with all uh, all sentient beings, all which is pretty much everything on Earth. We need to fit into the biosphere, you know, and we suffer from this. You know, the Western mind has been poisoned for thousands of years with the idea that we own nature, you know, that it exists to serve us, mm-hmm. and we can exploit it, uh, we can patent it, we can destroy it, you know, and that's kind of been the capitalist mindset, and and, and I have to say, you know, the sort of Judeo-Christian perspective has fostered this view that we're separate from nature, and mm-hmm. we're somehow... Uh, superior to nature and neither of those things is true we are part of nature we're not superior in fact if you look at the contribution that we're making to the stability of the planet we're we're way down on the scale uh, you know of being part of the solution so nature has a lot to teach us psychedelics can help us integrate those lessons psychedelics can teach us the lessons and but help the help us take them to heart you know mm-hmm. and I, I'm not one of these people that says if everyone took psychedelics it would be fine you know we'd all be enlightened and uh, and everything would be cool going forward I mean it's not that simple you know but they are one of the catalysts that can help shift global consciousness just one there are others as well but it's an important part of it because people do take them, particularly if they take them in these natural settings, things like ayahuasca and so on, they very often come away with a changed perspective about our, uh, uh, you know, our place in nature, essentially, where we fit in, and the many ways that we don't fit in because we haven't been listening, you know, to to nature enough. So hopefully they can help us uh, listen and integrate because nature is a teacher psychedelics are teachers uh, but they won't do any good if you don't listen and, and then integrate mm-hmm. I remember reading a quote um, I wish I could remember who it was a kind of enlightenment thinker that talked about you know that we'll, we'll never run out of uh, fish in the sea and kind of you know we can, we can take as many as we want and this, you know, there was a brief moment where we thought um, the resources in this world were inexhaustible and we could go on forever and we had you know, we had this kind of separate mindset that it was ours to kind of take the wild and, and tame it and use for our um you know purposes and kind of we moved completely away from that integrated uh, kind of perspective to this separate perspective and i think you're right that it's it you know obviously there's no panaceas but there is kind of catalysts that we can use to help bring that kind of mode of thought back together again right right Right. Yeah, um, I also I have a just I I love what you said about the the teachers and and us being able to learn from nature as teachers and and the entheogens and plant medicines being these teachers and something that we have come across in our kind of ponderings on psychedelics and and the role and the relationship that we build with them. Um, was this notion like Carl Jung? One of his quotes is, you know, beware the unearned wisdom, and um, something that's come up as as kind of a thread in in that psychedelic sphere is 
you know, as we step into these realms of deep learnings very quickly, you know, is, are there consequences to that? And, and you kind of alluded, I think, to some of that, you know, you're not going out and saying that if everyone took psychedelics, then the world would just be good all of a sudden. Um, so there's obviously considerations and things that need to be put in place for this to work. Um, but right. yeah, just, just wondering if, if you could elaborate a little bit more on, on your thoughts and do you, do you think there's weight to that statement of potential unearned wisdom that might come with psychedelics? Like if we're not ready for it, if, if we're not as mature for it as we think we might be. Well, uh, unearned wisdom, uh, I mean, I, th- I think that, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure exactly, uh, you know, how you're thinking of this. I, I think that, I, I think that people mistakenly think that psychedelics are some kind of shortcut you know, mm-hmm. to enlightenment, to shortcut, to wisdom. I don't agree with that. I think the lessons that you integrate from psychedelics are every every bit as hard-earned as, as lessons you might integrate from ascetic practices or meditation or other practices that you might, you know, live in a cave for 20 years and practice meditation every day and not necessarily emerge any more enlightened than any than a person who took psychedelics carefully thoughtfully and so on i think i i think we need all the tools we can get you know we need all of these things and uh, psychedelics are just one of the tools but they're one of the more powerful tools that we have because most people let's face it are not in a position to dedicate themselves to a life of medication, meditation, and spiritual, you know, spiritual practice, and so on. We we can only do so much of that, and I psychedelics in that sense can be a can be a catalyst. I do not think that the wisdom or the insights you have in psychedelics are necessarily invalid simply because uh, you know you got them from a psychedelic. Are they expedited? <laughs> Yeah, expedited, yeah. expedited, but still, still mm-hmm. legitimate. You know, mm-hmm. uh, people have, uh, yeah, I, uh, people. Uh, you know, we forget essentially that everything that happens to us, in, in some ways, in our experience, is a, uh, it's a reflection of our neurochemistry. You know, our neurochemical mm-hmm. brain state, and and you know, it's a point I sometimes make just to shock people losing its shock value lately but the point I like to make is remember we're made of drugs you know mm-hmm. that's why drugs are appealing to us because we happen to be machines that run on drugs so everything that uh, uh, you know we experience in, 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 in everything that we experience period is somehow coming through that neurochemical filter you know, we create this artificial reality, which now I think the, uh, you know, the, the sexy term in neuroscience is the default mode network. I used to call it, I still do, in fact, call it uh, the reality hallucination. You know, the reality hallucination is the world that we construct and live in. It's not reality. It's a model of reality. And mm-hmm. that's, the brain is very good at letting in the right things and 
and excluding other things that it might perceive to be extraneous or not immediately relevant to your survival and so it constructs this sort of schematic of reality which is much easier to handle if 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 all the input from outside you know uh uh happened all at once then we'd just be confused all the time it would be this blooming buzzing confusion so the brain is very adept at taking sensory input, combining that with memories, associations, other internal data, and creating a model of reality that makes sense, you know, to us, that our poor brains can handle. And, uh, and that's where we live. And then, and then psychedelics come along, and they can disrupt that, you know, temporarily. And that's, a, that's usually a useful thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it will reestablish itself. These, these, these uh, you know, the, these modalities are very resilient. They will, they will return to equilibrium. You know, uh, after you have a disoriented experience like a psychedelic, I mean, you'll recover your equilibrium. It'll come back. You know, uh, but it may work a little better. You know, it's kind of like you've blown out. Some of, it's like really I, I analogize it to rebooting your computer mm-hmm. you know it really is a big serotonin reset when you when you take psychedelics and the hard drive works a little bit better afterwards because you've got rid of a lot of the cobwebs <laughs> you know what I mean that, makes that me do think of uh, to accumulate yeah. yeah I think of like a Mary Kondo for your mind <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah exactly. get rid of the old exactly. stuff organize what you have take a second to <laughs> take a step back <laughs> take a step back it's very important to take mm-hmm. a step back and it's important to not only do that step out of your reference frame temporarily but then also pay attention to what's going on in the background you know, we especially in the West, we're very much programmed to focus on what's right in front of us. You know, and in a more holistic environment, like the environment of, say, an indigenous person in nature, there's a lot going on that we don't notice. You know, uh, we're programmed to exclude these things, but they're important. You know, they're important to know that they're there. So psychedelics can let you reverse that equation for a short time and see, you know, take your attention away to what's right in front of you and look at what's happening in the background. If that makes sense. It does. It Mm -hmm. does. Um, I want to double click on something you said uh, a little bit ago. You you touched on mysticism um, a couple of times. I read an article recently with the headline, is mysticism becoming a problem for psychedelic medicine? Essentially you know, arguing we need to draw a line between the hard science and the metaphysical belief. And you know, there's even some companies I've seen looking to create psychedelic drugs without any trip. Without um, the psychedelics, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to get your take. Can we remove the spiritual and get the benefits from these tools? To what extent do you think you know, that's an intrinsic part of the mechanism of action. I think it's very intrinsic. I think I think the people that want to design psychedelics that are not psychedelics are pretty much barking up the wrong tree. I mean, I think they misunderstand what what's going on here. Uh, I, I don't think. I mean, if if you design 
you know, if you engineer the trip out of a psychedelic, then by definition, it's not a psychedelic any longer. You know, mm-hmm. it's something else. I mean, it may modulate certain neurochemical processes and have some kind of a uh, therapeutic effect. But I think the kinds of uh, uh, revelatory experiences that people are getting from taking psychedelics require that you have that deep experience, you know, because that's where the change happens. That's where the transformative opportunities come up. For the same reason, I'm pretty much a skeptic about microdosing. You know, I think, I mean, microdosing may have some benefits, but, you know, people need to realize this is not, you know, I I mean, I'm not sure about microdosing. There are studies, there are very few studies of an actual benefit from it. The one I'm aware of showed that the placebo had as much benefit as as the microdose. I mean, are people afraid to actually step it up a little bit and have the psychedelic experience? Is this an excuse for people that are basically, you know, they want to be with the cool kids, but they don't actually want to have a psychedelic experience, you know? Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty much a, a skeptic on microdosing. And, and the idea that you can, uh, uh, you know, design molecules that lack the the essential quintessential I would say element of of the psychedelic experience and have any therapeutic effect left it's very hard for me to accept that because uh, you know catharsis a lot of what uh, psychedelic therapy is all about is catharsis you know Uh, it's a spiritual shock that can lead to a a sense of renewal you know and this is this is the power of a high dose psychedelic experience it does disrupt this default mode network and it can do it very thoroughly uh, and you know it puts you in this sort of it, it's almost like the tibetan idea of the bardo it puts you in this state of quantum indeterminacy you know and then you and then you collapse back into your normal space-time boundaries, but you're changed, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, that time leads to uh, changes in the way that it does fall back together. It will fall back together, but Mm -hmm. maybe not in the same way that it worked quite quite before, and it may work more efficiently. So Mm -hmm. I I think that uh, people that are trying to... uh, you know, engineer the psychedelic experience out of the molecules are are seriously misguided. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do I think, think you bring up a, a good point that it might serve a different function. And, and if there are therapeutic benefits that can be explored and validated through the various methods that we have, um, you know, if at, at the end of the day it can serve a set of population who might not be able to take psychedelic medicines, then... You know, hopefully, yeah. hopefully they can still receive some of the benefit that is, as you said. You know, I, we I we are made of we are made of drugs. So, <laughs> we um, if we can yeah. if we can find yeah. the right chemical composition for each person, um, sure, and understand that you know, like you said, psychedelics. Microdosing might have some benefits as a follow up to a therapeutic level dose of psychedelics. That it's a way to 
get sort of revisit that state mm-hmm. in a in a less less dramatic way and remind mm-hmm. yourself or re remember what you might have learned in that therapeutic level dose. But I don't think that microdosing can substitute for the real thing. People that want to microdose, I mean, go ahead and microdose. Don't forget to look around the corner once in a while. There's a world of wonder waiting to be discovered. Mm-hmm. I think I, yeah. I completely agree, though. Like understanding microdosing's role or these varying levels of um, of taking these compounds. Um, the benefit that I've at least seen or experienced from microdosing is is in the preparatory phase and helping people to understand their own dose response and, and get in tune with their body and understand at what point are their thresholds, you know, where do I start to feel these things or maybe yeah. tune into themselves on a, on a more minute kind of level in the day to day, you know, understanding some, some of these protocols recommend five days on, you know, if, if you are sitting down with yourself and developing an intentional practice for five days a week, hopefully that'll lend itself to further benefit as you go into those deeper, more macro experiences. So, um, and I, I totally agree. There's, there's definitely not the wealth of knowledge that would be helpful to understand more of the mechanisms, but, um, I guess, yeah, that's how I, I understand it for myself in the meantime, is that understanding the function that it serves as much. Again, yeah, it's, it's everyone's choice. I mean, if you microdose and you find benefits in there, you know, don't listen to me. I mean, I mean, what you know? I, I, am not you. I can't, I can't speak for what you feel is beneficial. I just think, uh, don't miss know, out I on mean, the good stuff. Is what yeah, you're saying? Don't, don't miss out on the good stuff. Yeah. Don't miss out on the on the experiences that are available, or or delude yourself that this is all there is to psychedelics because it's mm-hmm. not. And I'm sure you haven't. I'm sure you've been around the corner a few times, or. Beyond the chrysanthemum, or how you want to put it, you know, and I think that's important to have those have those uh, really, those experiences. You know, that's where mm-hmm. the healing comes. You know, the whole idea that if you look at the spectrum of therapeutic uh, effects that we talk about for psychedelics, like trauma, depression, addiction. Uh, those sorts of things, uh, anxiety, uh, all of these are, uh, you know, the, the, I mean, psychedelics are kind of the broad spectrum in a certain way, if you can use that term, uh, psycho, you know, psychoactive medicine, and they all have in common this idea of, of stepping outside the reference frame temporarily. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where mm-hmm. the therapeutic effects can take place in this sort of limbo that's created this opportunity you know almost embryonic state you know that you put yourself in and then when it comes back together you know uh, it's more coherent it runs smoother it's like you've you know you've oiled the engine in some mm-hmm. ways so microdose potentially uh, but make sure you take a look into the screaming abyss once in a while absolutely absolutely <laughs> At least a few times, at least once. I mean, let's let's say at least once, maybe more. Um, <laughs> I wonder if, um, you know, going back to your point about the, the, the mysticism, I, I just wonder if there's a kind of a friction point there. Um, this, uh, I guess, this intuition to throw out 
religiosity which is probably steeped in um, some you know there's a valid kind of reason why you would want to do that but we're kind of throwing out the baby with the bathwater in terms of you know almost lumping in that with all of mysticism and maybe we need to you know untangle that mystical experience from the baggage what has historically been you know religion and religiosity yeah yeah well yeah it, it, you can have a mystical experience that it doesn't necessarily have to be tied to any particular religion or dogma mm-hmm. I think one thing that we've learned from psychedelics and, and neuroscience is that for whatever reason you know we have built into our neural architecture the receptor systems that respond to the molecules that will elicit a psychedelic experience, you know, or a mystical experience. What the evolutionary uh, benefit of that is, is, is not exactly clear, but I think it's clear that we have evolved, these complex brains have evolved to be able to have these kinds of what is what is probably mischaracterized as a mystical experience because that that brings up all the baggage associated with religious dogma and all that. Let's call them profoundly meaningful experiences, uh-huh. which is the which is the terminology that Roland Griffiths and his group now use. They don't talk about religious experience. They uh-huh. talk about personally meaningful experiences. You know, and in that context, you can see the benefits of psychedelics. Isn't this what we all long for? Mm-hmm. Meaningful experience? Isn't this what uh, our society is bereft of? You know, and I think this is a one reason why there's this widespread sense of despair, you know, and hopelessness in our society because we've we've ripped the meaning out of society. You know, fe- people feel they've reached a point where everything is so screwed up, what's the point, you know, and uh, and so you know I, I mean, one of the uh, findings from, from Roland's study that was widely quoted was that, you know, something like 30% of the, of the cohort in his first study said that the psilocybin experience was the single most meaningful experience of their entire lives. Oh my mm-hmm. god, if you had a drug that would do that, wouldn't you want to get that out to be oh wait a minute, we do have a drug that will do that. <laughs> oh, that one. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know? remember so, reading that statistic and being blown away. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And we could all use that. I think everyone feels this 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 uh you know this deficit in, in meaning, you know, that's one of the chief uh, afflictions of, of our species right now, and certainly mm-hmm. of our culture, you know, this feeling that, you know, uh, that we're losing meaning, we're losing, uh, you know, and then that along with that comes this existential despair, and, uh, you know, which is maybe appropriate for the times that we're living in, but it's not a solution for anything. You know, we've got to yeah. get past that. Oh. Yeah, I, I saw a, a cartoon um, that uh, had a koala clinging to a tree that was chopped down, 
and somebody mm. pointing to it and saying you've got a mental health problem um, you know, <laughs> clearly we need to kind of consider the cultural and epistemic kind of forces that are converging to make people feel bereft of meaning I think it's probably a kind of long stemming issue that we've suffered from in the West when you know ever since the Enlightenment or you know when Nietzsche said God is dead we, we kind of killed that mechanism that we that we have um mm -hmm. you know in in you know validly um because of the the baggage but we didn't really replace it with any uh any kind of systems of, of meaning and so we've got this you know neoliberal society which you know if you have that that society set up without these structures of meaning all you've got is meaning through kind of you know accruing capital or, or whatever it is and kind of you know winning in competition um so i just i i wonder that's whether not really meaning right right, right. and so we have yeah. these kind of um these things that stand in for meaning but it doesn't actually bring people joy or profundity or or um and so kind of you know i think there's this kind of movement towards a secular mysticism i don't even, I, I agree i don't really like the word mysticism but this kind of secular uh, you know push to rediscover the profound and awe and psychedelics just seem to be this amazing catalyst to being able to achieve those states you know and, and to your point earlier not everyone has 20 years um you know to sit in a cave or even 10 days to do vipassana but right. a day-long um session with psychedelics can really do a lot to reboot and give you a different perspective and give you that feeling of of awe that we so desperately crave yes yes so they're important tools for sure you mm -hmm. know uh, along with other tools but one of the more important and you know it's interesting that as a species we we have this tendency to uh you know uh, uh declare taboo and even prohibit things like psychedelics precisely because i think we have an intuition that this could change everything you know mm -hmm. and people are resistant to change you know and and so that they are threatening you know my brother used to say in his talks he he would say yeah psychedelics are very dangerous they give you dangerous ideas you know mm -hmm. and that's the truth you know it's the ideas that are dangerous mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. um speak, speaking of your brother um you know one one thing i, I was curious to ask you we've got a we've got a guest um coming up on, on a later show that's you know, talking all about kind of music and psychedelics um i know you know terence initially thought i've read quotes where he's kind of said that you know they potentially impede the experience um you know and you kind of you want to kind of sit with the medicine and and, and not have those distractions come in um now, what do you think about music and psychedelics, and what do you personally prefer on on your experiences? Well, I, I think these are. This is one of the places where you know your personal preferences make a difference. Uh, I, I know that he had the idea that you know high doses of mushrooms should be taken in complete darkness, in complete mm -hmm. silence, and that's okay. You know, I mean, I mean, those are interesting. Uh, traditionally, there is always some kind of audio component. You know, uh, the Ikaros, the Ikaros as they're called in, in ayahuasca, the songs that are sung. 
I think sound is important. I don't think that if you choose to exclude sound that the invalidates your experience, but I think sound can be a very important element of, and it's always used, uh, you know, in these clinical studies as well, although we can debate the appropriateness of the of the musical soundtracks that are used in some of these things. My friend Alexandre Tanu, who is an ethnopharmacologist, talks about the importance of atonal music as an accompaniment to psychedelics and uh, and I think that he's got a point you know that I've taken uh, psychedelics in those situations of sound therapy where with the gongs and the singing bowls and all that it can have a tremendously uh, it's it's very compatible it can be mm-hmm. I don't I don't see it as a distraction mm-hmm mm-hmm I think there's some. But it depends some pretty, on the music, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think there's yeah. some some pretty fascinating research coming out as well about um, just understanding the cultural context of the person in right. the experience, and and I think that really spoke to what you said about these these experiences being profoundly personal and meaningful. So mm-hmm. the the context of the music. I mean, a lot of the previous studies, I'm sure you can speak to that even more, but um, we're done with classical music. And, and as we're, right. we're learning, we, we're discovering and rediscovering, you know, most traditional ceremonial practice, they're not playing classical they're, music. They're, <laughs> they're playing yeah. drums and windpipes. And, and you know, it, it really does make the, a difference on the environment. Things. Yeah, exactly. These, these like overtonal kind of uh, uh, musical instruments that that, is that makes a big difference. And Alexandre talks about how uh, you know the 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 uh, the oct the eight tone scale versus the twelve tone scale was implemented. The, the eight octave scale was uh, implemented in Christian religious music at a certain point. You know, in the Middle Ages, and that was and it was actually brought forward to suppress mystical experience. Mm. Anyway, I, I should I should let him tell tell the story. <laughs> you know, I don't want to misspeak, but I think these uh, uh, you know these these overtonal harmonics are very important to the psychedelic experience. Mm-hmm. 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 I think one of the the things that I love learning more about the work that, um, and I'd I'd love to hear you speak a little bit more on this as well. Um, Learning more about the McKenna Academy and the the work that you folks are doing, one thing that you uh, amplify across your website is this understanding that science is really just about uncovering more mysteries. And please correct mm-hmm. me if that is misquoted or obstructed. <laughs> but um, you know, if if this conversation has has showed anything, is that more questions always equal more questions, more answers equal more questions, and there's so many. Wonderful and exciting nuances to all of this uh, this information in the space that we get to engage with, and um, yeah, I'd love I'd love to give you the opportunity to share a little bit more about the the amazing work that the McKenna Academy is doing, and yeah, little introduction to, to that work. Okay, well, uh, people can look at the, uh, the, the you know they they can look at the at the website. I don't see a text uh, box here, but that's okay if you just go to. Uh, www.mckenna.academy the website is there I conceive the McKenna Academy, I mean in the first place it's not about me, but people said well if you're going to do this you should 
step up and own it at least. So I did that. More importantly, uh, it's sort of conceived as a modern mystery school in the sense that, you know, something that takes an... uh, It's called the McKenna Academy of Natural Philosophy. Natural philosophy is what preceded science, what science evolved out of before it became quantitative and reductionist. So, you know, natural philosophy is the precursor of science when people were open to asking broader questions, you know, and uh, and trying to understand, you know, what is the mystery? We call it a modern mystery school. The mystery is right in front of us. You know, the mystery is the effort to understand the cosmos and our place in the cosmos and the deeper we look the more the more mysterious it becomes i mean science can shed a light on these things but the beauty of it is there are no final answers as you say the more questions you ask the more you know the more answers you get that just sparks more questions so uh you know human curiosity is endless and uh, there and it is what drives discovery, and I think what drives cognitive evolution is the desire to understand more, and that's what the McKenna Academy is all about, to, to try and push that forward. In the, in the practical sort of instantiation of all this, so, you know, we're, we're a small organization, uh, and we have limited bandwidth, so in, in terms of... Uh, uh, you know what we're trying to manifest uh it, it's been in part definitely affected by covid when when we originally founded the mckenna academy the idea was we were going to do retreats and conferences and so on probably primarily in south america we've been doing some of that before and then covid came along and and sort of undermined those plans so now we've had to go virtual pretty much, and that's what we've been doing, trying to present online events and, uh, uh, you know, things that will uh, appeal to people and be learning opportunities. For example, we just got done teaching a six-week course in ethnobotany in collaboration with the uh, Organization for Tropical Studies. And people would think, well, ethnobotany, that's boring. Uh, <laughs> Little do they know. It's not, <laughs> you know, and, and it's important to us. And, and it, it was actually a marvelous course. We had some amazing guest speakers, and uh, and so we're doing that. We're trying to create educational opportunities. A lot of it around plant medicines. And uh, uh, if you go on our website, you could look at uh, some of the events that we've that we've presented sometimes by ourselves sometimes in collaboration with others but it's just a a big uh you know a a a big part of it if i had to put the mission and the and the uh, you know and the vision and all that which these organizations are supposed to have a vision and a mission statement well the vision you know is to re to foster the re-establishment of harmonious relationships with all species you know and the vision that's the mission the vision is to try to provide through these uh educational uh 
opportunities for people to have these transformative experiences. Not necessarily take psychedelics, that's certainly within the scope, but just stretch the mind a little bit and, you know, participate in some of these some of these mind-bending forums that we've had and so on. So, uh, and, and we have a concern to bring uh, science and traditional knowledge together. So one, one project that we're working on right now we call Biognosis. Uh, and we're, as it has turned out, it's turning into a documentary project where we're uh, making a documentary of uh, on traditional knowledge in the Amazon, traditional medicinal knowledge in the Amazon, and sort of uh, the current state of affairs around that, you know, in the 21st century, post-COVID, post-ayahuasca tourism, all that, these traditions still exist, and they're still vibrant, and we're trying to preserve that knowledge and uh, and make the wider world aware of how important that is uh, to save this knowledge because you know the, 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 the knowledge is under threat but along with that the species you know the genetics is mm-hmm. under threat the habitats are and the cultural uh, sort of uh, uh, intactness of, of the indigenous, indigenous cultures all of these are are uh, you know, under great under great threat, under great uh, danger, they're becoming uh, becoming lost. Particularly as the as climate change advances, the changes in the environment. So, one of the big uh, sort of uh, objectives of the of the McKenna Academy is try to preserve this knowledge and and do it by bringing science and traditional knowledge together. So, that's. Mm-hmm. In a Sounds like a wonderful I film. I deeply I look forward to viewing that with the Guella yeah. team. Movie watching yeah. night. It look it looks like it'll be. Uh, well, we're working on an initial initial uh, short short documentary as a way of kind of focusing, and then we hope to obtain uh, enough funding to make a series, five to seven part series that focuses on different aspects of the practice of. Uh, traditional shamanic medicine in South America, in the Amazon, and kind of where is it at, and who is doing different things, and so on. So there's a lot going on in that area right now. We just finished a couple of weeks of filming in Iquitos and got some amazing footage. So I didn't do it. I have people that do it. I, I get to look at it from a distance. I don't have to go there. But anyway, that's all going on so that's what we're doing and we have a we're a non-profit I should say we're we're incorporated as a 501c3 uh, we have a capital campaign going on right now we're trying to raise some money so if people visit the website they can feel free to give us money and send you know we can give them tax deductions and uh, and then we're talking to some uh, other donors who can provide you know, higher levels of, of support and so on. So there's a lot of enthusiasm for this. This seems to be have resonated with people. So uh, that's where we're at with that. Right Amazing. Now. Yeah. We will 
for sure include the uh, the link to that platform or in the show notes um yeah please please yeah. do mm-hmm. uh, and dennis look this has been an incredible conversation i want to thank you uh, so much for coming on the show um and giving us your your time um finally uh you know do you have any comments or you know thoughts that you want to leave people with on the kind of future of psychedelics where would you like to see all this go what's your hope for the for the space well i think uh you know what what we talked about in a certain way you know i i think that i'd like to see all the trends that are currently happening reach their fruition to the point where psychedelics are available to people that want them in the right kind of context and and uh, generally uh, you know are are integrated in into our society in in ways that are beneficial you know I mean they're not going away they never have gone away they've always been here so it's up to us to figure out uh, you used previously a, a word that I love and I think you you said biophilia, you know, and one thing psychedelics do is they they make you love life, you know. Biophilia is a love for life. Psychedelics can, uh, you know, can foster that attitude. And if we enough of us have that revelation, then maybe we can begin to take steps to stop killing life, stop killing the planet. This is the this is the uh, this is the realization that we have to come to. And in order to make that happen, we have to change almost everything. You know, uh, I, I just finished reading a, a little while ago a, a book by Kim Stanley Robinson. You may be familiar with him. He's a science fiction writer. This is, it's, it's called The Ministry for the Future. And it's a very interesting book. It's almost like a uh, future history of the next 30 years of what is, needs to happen if we're actually going to make it through this bottleneck. It's the most encouraging thing I've read about uh, the current cl- planetary climate change crisis in that there are solutions, you know, and this this book uh, hopefully, you know, it's very optimistic in the sense that it envisions that we'll get to recognize what we're facing and respond to it. Most of what you read these days in this area is we're not recognizing and we're not responding to it, you know, and then it just makes me more depressed. But this actually is a fairly uplifting book, and it's got much solid information in it about, you know, it, it's it's a it's almost a policy manifesto as well as a, uh, you know, definitely sort of a realistic future history of how the next 30 years might go if we get our act together. Uh, so I highly recommend it. It's very interesting. I, Tim Ferriss brought me to it. If uh, He mentioned it, and I immediately ordered it. I was not disappointed. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm putting it, putting it on my list now. Yeah, please. <laughs> okay, well, well, we'll wrap it up, but thank you so much, Dennis. Okay. Thank you, Dennis. Uh, a little longer than forty-five minutes, but I think, <laughs> we, covered, I think we covered everything. So we did. Uh, we did. So, so much goodness. That was Great. that was excellent. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Okay, Let truly me a pleasure. Know.